Welcome to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. This event was recorded on July 28, 2014 at the Wellfleet Library, and tonight's hosts are Lewis Wheeler and Amanda Collins. The theme for the evening is libraries and new chapters. And actually, I feel a little guilty being here in beautiful Wellfleet Public Library because I'm actually from Brewster, and we have our own beautiful public library, the Brewster Ladies Library. Uh, And one of the first things that happened to me when I came to work in Wellfleet at Wellfleet Harbor Actors Theater about seven years ago was I lost my Brewster Ladies Library library card. (laughs) And I had to come in to the Wellfleet Public Library and get a new library card, and this one says Wellfleet Public Library on it. So now when I go to the Brewster Ladies Library, I use my Wellfleet Public Library oh. one. You're in trouble. Whoa. I always am curious about the Brewster Ladies Library. Like, am I allowed to go? Is that, is that okay? Because I feel like, I don't know. Actually, fun fact, at the beginning, the Brewster Ladies Library was founded by, I think, seven, uh, 12 women in the 1850s. And at first, there was a fee to rent the books, and I think they charged the men more. That is not true anymore. Um, but they still call it Brewster Ladies Library, but I think they've tacked on your community library to make sure everyone knows that it's for everyone. Excellent. Uh, and I hope you all know that you're in a five-star library. The, yes, here we go, here we go. Uh, the Wellfleet Library, and Elaine McElroy's in the back, uh, was uh, uh, awarded the, the very prestigious five-star, like the Michelin Guide for Restaurants. <laughs> It's the New York Times, you know, library award for the whole country, and this is one of the best libraries in the country, not just Cape Cod. That's right. Woo! So this is a special place to be in. So fantastic that right before we started, Lewis had a book that he had taken out, and Joyce is now renewing it for him right now, and it should be ready for him after the show. It's ready! It it's ready in the back. It's renewed. <laughs> And I might owe 20 cents, I think, but that's okay. The price is right. The price is right. Our first storyteller tonight is Candace Perry. Okay. Hi. Um, in 1991-ish, when I was on the library trustee board, there's the library, okay, um, I was beginning to date and get to know the man who would become my husband. And we were mature people at that time already. It was, gonna, it was a new relationship for both of us, having been married and divorced and we had children. And as you sort of get to know each other, you know, you say, what do you wish you'd done? Who would you like to be? Just, just different, different things. And so I asked him, was there anything he wished that he had done in his life? And he told me that he wished he had gotten an education. And to me, I was really surprised because I thought he was just really smart and really clever and he knew lots of things. I mean, he knew how to build things and he knew how to make kids feel good. He knew how to make me feel good. He was a wonderful man. And I was really surprised that he said he wished he'd gotten an education. I said, what do you mean? He said, I only finished the eighth grade. And he had not told people that. Turns out he had ADD and he got beat up by nuns and all that. And so at finally, and that was your story, I'm sorry. So finally at 16, he dropped out of school and um, he just had never gone on to get an education. He had finished the eighth grade. 
And so I tend to be sort of naive and optimistic, and I just said, well, why don't you go to school now? And I think at the time he was 52, and he said, well, if I go to school now, that would take me four years, and I would be 56. Did I do the math right? And I said, well, if you don't go to school in four years, you'll be 56, <laughs> but you won't have an education, so why don't you do it? And so to his great credit, he went to Four C's and got a GED. He then went to Bridgewater, got an undergraduate degree in social work, worked a few years, then went back to school, got a master's in social work. And some of those years, we had him plus three kids all in college. And we're here to tell the tale, and we've been married 22 years. That's my story. <laughs> Next on the mic, we have Sea Urchin. Well, I can't actually believe I'm doing this, but I felt somehow that I should because definitely a new chapter in my life began just a bit up the road. It was some years ago when I was 14 years old, which would have put it somewhere in the late 60s, in North Truro when I became a traveler and I stuck out or struck out by myself at night and hitchhiked Provincetown. And that was the beginning of my traveling years. Some years later, I ended up in Nova Scotia and I became a, quite an intrepid hitchhiker. So I was in Nova Scotia alone, maybe, I don't know, still a teenager, 17, I'm not sure. And I was picked up, I was in the habit of hitchhiking with a knapsack and a sleeping bag, and I would, I was very smart. I didn't hitchhike at night like I did when I started out in North Truro and went to Provincetown. I only hitchhiked during the daylight, and when night fell, I'd roll out my sleeping bag on the side of the road, whatever trees or bush was out there, and sleep and get up at dawn and continue traveling. So I was picked up by a pickup truck and, uh, was a man, and he had a, in behind the visor was a bottle of rum. And I wasn't much of a drinker, but the bottle of rum came out, and I started sharing the bottle of rum, and got late, and I thought I'd roll out my sleeping bag. I somehow got out of the truck and rolled out my sleeping bag and went to sleep. And I woke up. Now, sunrise in Nova Scotia, because it's further north, happens very early in the summer, so it might have been, I don't know, four in the morning or something, and I woke up so thirsty and so sick, <laughs> and it was four in the morning, and I realized I was sleeping in a bog. I had rolled out my sleeping bag, I was, the sleeping bag was soaking wet, and I was so parched and so thirsty. Everything was wet, but there was, I wasn't gonna drink out of the swamp. So I rolled everything up and walked out onto the road, and it was so early, nothing was open, no one was on the road, and there was nowhere to get a drink of water. So I walked down the road and had to wait until the first gas station opened up where I could finally get a drink of water. And I have to say that is the story of 
the time in my life when I was more thirsty than I ever remember or ever hope to be again in my life. Thank you. Our next storyteller is Susanna Pabst. Well, um, right okay. I, I, I also can't Stay believe close. I'm doing this. And my story, this is the town where I live now, and my story is very revealing. So I'd like one of you to come and block me while I tell the story, please. Oh, like, no. I can hide behind you. No, oh, kidding. no! <laughs> <laughs> um, so I love libraries, and I've always loved the Wellfleet Library. And I actually remember when, it, when I was a little girl, it was up on the top of the town hall, and there were, so, there were millions of stairs, and it was all... I don't know, the ceilings were, were pointed to me, that's how I remember it. And I remember coming into this building and dipping candles the shape of teddy bears into, into wax. It used to be a, a wax factory. Um, anyway, it's I've always loved libraries. I've always studied a lot. I've become a writer or trying to become a writer. So I um, work in libraries. Um, it's probably not a coincidence that my life completely changed when I got set on fire in a library. Um, and how it happened was I... I um, was a, I finally was able to study my, what I wanted to study all my life, which was writing. Um, and I was a mature student, so I was about 31, but I felt about 84 when I was um, in the class with lots of 21, 22-year-olds. And I was um, married at the time to a man that's a, who's a wonderful man, but wasn't the right man for me to be married to, and I was lost. And so um, we, were we were given classes to teach, and I, um, classes of, of 19, 20, 21-year-olds. And um, uh, the, we had our first meeting with the, about teaching with the department in the departmental library. And we were told um, that we were under no circumstances allowed to get involved with any of our students um, while we were their teachers. And so I was sitting there with all these beautiful, gorgeous, um, young 21-year-olds thinking, well, this is not uh, going to apply to me in any way, um, so I don't even have to listen to these rules. So, and, uh, so I started teaching my class. I was very, very nervous. It was the first time. It was a, a very good university in Ivy League University, and I was very nervous about teaching these brilliant, brilliant young students. And, um, and it, but I was assigned a teaching room in the library, and so I thought, okay, this is going to be good. I love libraries. So, um, and the first class came in. Um, they were all beautiful and brilliant, like I, like I suspected. Um, one kid um, was uh, annoying, um, was <laughs> a mosquito. He would uh, go on and on at me. He went on and on at me the whole lesson, so I was ready to want to throw him out. And at the very end of the class, he said to me um, that he um, wanted to, uh, all his life he'd wanted to take a fiction class, which was what I was teaching, but he felt like he was not a good writer. And I said to him, you know that most people who are good writers um, carry this fear with them that they feel that they are not good writers. So there was a bond there, and um, he, um, every time I, I needed to meet individually with students, the other students would, you know, dutifully come to my um, office hours in the building. And he would always request to meet me. The class was from 7 to 9, and he would always request to meet me at 9 o'clock after the class in the library when everyone else was gone. And I didn't think anything was suspicious about that. And then he would um, sit closer and closer to me while we were discussing his stories. And his hand would brush my hand. And I would think nothing at all of that, because of course, he could not want anything from, from me, because I was so very, very 
old. And, um, and then um, he, uh, this, and then a few, few meetings later, his leg was, was, was wrapped around my leg. And, and again, I thought, this is, must be just a lack of space, or I don't know. So um, the, as the story ends, um, after the vacation, when he was technically not my student anymore, he brought his whole pile of um, stories he'd written, he wanted to meet me one more time. And instead of discussing the stories, he leaned over and kissed me, and I realized that um, I, although nothing ever happened with him, I realized that I needed to break free from my marriage and find someone who truly set me on fire. So, wow. <laughs> and it was not my 20-year-old student, but I am grateful to this day that he was so um, courageous and cocky and did you know, was able to take that step um, with his professor in the library, so. <laughs> I Coming to the stage is Erwin Rosenthal. It was pretty late, maybe nine or 10, uh, when I was sitting at my desk at the Ellenville Lumber Company in Ellenville, New York, and the little U-Haul phone that they give to everyone who's a U-Haul agent rang, and a fellow I'd never heard before said, what would be the rate for the biggest truck going from somewhere in Louisiana to Kingston, New York? So I looked it up and I gave him the, re the information and I asked him because U-Haul had proved to be of little profit but of tremendous interest. Lots of people, different people take U-Hauls. He said, well, I'm about seven miles away in Kerhonks, New York. And for years, my business has been repairing church organs. And sometimes I trade when one church needs one and another is missing one. So there's a church going out of business in Louisiana, and there's a church in Kingston that needs one. I never heard from Russell Oliver again, but I decided, let me put that on my device, which in that case was not electronic. It was a little rotary file with three by five cards that you could clip on. And Russell Oliver's name remained there for at least a year, which is when I heard that the Ellenville Public Library was sponsoring an architectural tour of the places of worship in Ellenville, New York, a place that has as little significance in architectural history <laughs> as I think it has familiarity to most of you. Um, but I decided, well, I mean, all I've ever seen of the places of worship is the Hebrew Aid Society in Ellenville, so why not? <laughs> so I went with about a dozen people to the various places in Ellenville, and then at night, I walked into the St. John's Episcopal Church in Ellenville. It, from the inside, it's about three stories high. It looks like an upside-down old wooden ship with the beams. It was an American chestnut, which doesn't exist anymore. It had been built that way. And the church had opened in 1875 and had Tiffany glass windows. The pictures on the walls were the ones that had been there originally. So while the outside had been vinyl siding for as long as I could remember, the inside was like entering a different world, except for a tiny hand organ, which was in the corner. And so I asked them, you know, 
why is it there? And they said, well, you know, this church was built in 1875. That organ hasn't worked for years. Boing! <laughs> Stayed in the back of my head uh, for a short time. That's all it was, until a young couple came in uh, with a U-Haul truck. Um, it was the to-be new uh, minister, priest of the Episcopalian Church in Ellenville. And I said, um, Reverend Gallier, <laughs> you're not going to believe this, but, and I took out my three by five card of Russell Oliver, and I gave it to him, and he looked at me kind of strangely, and he left. And in a few short months, um, Jeff Gallier had gotten a hold of whoever has the money at some level of the Episcopal Church, and he had gotten a hold of Ellenville High School students who were looking to do things, and he had combined it into a proposal, which resulted in that old, original, wooden organ sounding again. And uh, on the first day that that organ was played, I was invited to sit there, and it was a very happy time. Cool. That's a great story. Next up, we have Kevin Gallagher. So I grew up part of my life in central Vermont in a small city. Uh, it was the early 70s. And it was a very good time to be a kid. Uh, summer meant that you played outside all day. You never saw parents or adults. Uh, you were completely independent, and you had to fend for yourself. And you knew it was time to go home when everyone else started going home for supper. And that was your cue. And, uh, and there was also sort of, you know, the, the, there were just not a lot of rules back then. I remember, like, my parents would send me to the store to buy a six-pack of beer and a pack of cigarettes. <laughs> and you just went and you said, my mother wants a six-pack of beer and a pack of cigarettes. And, and they would put it on the charge, you know, because your parents would come in on, on Friday after they got paid and pay the bill. So it was a very, very nice time uh, to be a kid. Uh, a lot of freedom, a lot of independence. But I also loved the library at that time. I was an uh, avid reader, and the library was a great place for me. I just really felt at one with all the books. And I was often taking out five or six books uh, at a time, and then I was, I was back before the end of the week to get out some more. But the library was also the place where I learned how to be an imposter. Uh, when I was in high school, I was checking out a book that I needed for a project, and I get up there, and it was a very stern, shall we say, less than friendly-looking librarian. I'm sure there are none of those in Wellfleet. Um, and just somewhat of a sourpuss, and uh, she's doing a lot of paperwork. Now, for those of you who remember, there was not a lot of paperwork in the library. It was stamp the book, stamp the card, stamp the book, stamp the card. <laughs> So she's like looking through all kinds of things, and I thought, you know, what is she doing? And I said, is there a problem? And she said, well, Kevin, you can't check out this book because you have an overdue fine. And I said, from what? And she said, our records indicate that you took out a Look magazine in 1962, <laughs> and you owe almost $50 in late fines. Now, in the early 70s, $50 was pretty much like $10,000. Uh, 
Um, and I said, well, in 1962, I was two. <laughs> and I lived in Washington, DC. So I'm really sure I did not take it out. And she said, perhaps you lent your card to somebody? <laughs> or, or someone stole it? And I said, I'm thinking to myself, I'm a reader, but I wasn't that early a reader. <laughs> I was not that. So I lost the battle, you know, but I continued the fight. And so the next day I went to the library, because for me to not have a library card was unbelievable. So the next day I went into the library and that librarian wasn't there. So I went up to the counter and I said, hi, I'm new in town and I would like a library card. And so I filled out the form and my name was Patrick Brown. Now I picked Patrick because I thought my middle name was Patrick so I would sort of remember it. And then the Brown was just like a regular last name. And so to this day, my, my library card from that library still says Patrick Brown, even though, even though my name is Kevin Gallagher. But that began a series of impersonating. So a couple years later, when it was time for me to get a fake driver's license so that I could buy beer uh, before I was 18, I became Richard Higgins. I always liked the name Richard, and I thought it was a good name. And Higgins sort of felt like, you know, it felt kind of Irish still. And then we move a little bit forward to college, and I was trying to go to a party at a friend's in college out in San Francisco. And for those of you who remember People Express, it was a very cheap way of flying. I went to college in Boston. And so I got to the airport, and I'm trying to buy a ticket, and the woman says to the man in front of me, I'm sorry, that flight sold out. And so I get up to the counter, and of course everything's on a clipboard, there's no computers, and I look down, and there's a name that's not crossed off, and I said, hi, I'm Chris Gilligan. And she said, well, you had better hurry up. You're the last one on the flight. Of course, no TSA or anything, you know. So, and if you remember on People's Express, you paid on board. So it didn't really matter who you were at the gate because you could be somebody else on the plane. You know, and then later in college, I wanted to see Katherine Hepburn. She was playing in a play at the Schubert in Boston. And uh, my, my friend Karen Moore used to work at that theater. And so I went to the theater and I dressed really grubby. And I said, I'm Karen's brother, Kevin Moore and I'm here to meet her, and she's backstage, and this was all supposed to be arranged, so it should all be easy, you know, and they're like, oh, I don't know, I don't know, and so they let me in, and I got to meet Katherine Hepburn, and that was really wonderful, and then I was trying to impress a date once, and in Boston, and called a restaurant, and I was Brian Kennedy, because that's a good name to have in Boston, and there's so many of them, you know, Who's gonna know if there's a Brian or not? So it did get me a table. But in the end, I sort of felt like between literature and, and stories and characters, I sort of felt like if I had never found a library, I never would have, I might have ended up being Kevin Gallagher the rest of my life. And I may not even be Kevin Gallagher tonight. Thank you. And our final storyteller for the evening is Maury Coover. Okay. Really interesting. You just never know what's going to happen in a library. Um, I am a librarian's daughter, so it's kind of bred in my bone. Um, I have more books than furniture in my adult house. Um, 
But I, I just, I can't separate. I have so many chapters of books and intimate experiences in libraries that I, I, I wouldn't even know where to begin. But I made a new friend. I'm only in Wellfleet one day, and I said, well, I'll go down to the Wellfleet Library, because you never know what's going on down there. So I hurried up, made my dinner, and drove down and was reading the Cape Cod Times, and Betsy introduced herself to me. And she said, would you like to speak um, with the mosquito people or whatever? And I was intrigued. And um, she said, it's, it's, the theme is libraries. And I said, oh, well, my father was a librarian. And she said, then you'd be perfect. <laughs> so here I am. Um, and you know, I spent many, many summers down in Sandwich um, getting books from chin to crotch with the rest of my family members because we had no TV, which was really a wonderful thing. We just gobbled books up like crazy. And now my new chapter is I'm up here in Wellfleet for the last three summers. And I have to say, one of the big things, I can't wait to get on the Cape to be here at this library. And that's what I was doing tonight. I said, they have to have a guest speaker. There's a poetry reading. There's something going on at the library. And little did I know it was me. <laughs> but on a more serious note, um, in the last three years that I've come here, I've heard some incredible discussions um, some so far over my head, I'm sure they're keeping my brain synapses healthy and young, because I couldn't figure them out, but I was trying. Neuroscientists, physicists, um, World Bank people, I mean, it's just incredible. The smorgasbord of people that have stood probably with these microphones makes me feel a little important. But one of the things for me that this library has affected me personally, and on a more serious note, is I'm a poet and I'm a writer, but I've always lacked confidence. The interesting thing is, after three years of hearing people read their poetry and meeting other poets, I have finally gained the confidence to go back to my, my where I'm from, Buffalo, New York, and I'm, oh, thank you. There's more to Buffalo than the Bills. Let's, let's just put, and snow, and snow. But um, I'm finally writing and um, hope to publish a chapbook in the next two years. And, and a lot of it had to do with coming here in this small venue, um, hearing other poets share. So it gave me the confidence and the courage to do it, too. So anyway, that's it for me. Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast 2014 summer season. The Mosquito is produced by Tidal Theatre Company, Caitlin Langstaff, and Vanessa Vardabedian, and was sponsored by WOMR 92.1 in Provincetown and WBUR 89.1 in Brewster. You can keep up with us on Facebook and Twitter and subscribe to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast on iTunes. Join us again in 2015 for more Story Slams on the Outer Cape and your chance to bite it live.